would ask you to remain standing for the reading of God's Word. And I'd ask you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I'll read the chapter in its entirety, though we will look specifically at verses 11 through 13 in the ministry of the Word. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 1 through 26. This is the Word of God, holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, 
patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Thus far the reading of the word of our God. Let us seek his blessing upon it. Our Father in heaven, send forth your spirit to attend to that word which was in fact breathed out by the spirit. And grant, Lord, understanding to those who hear. Grant faith, indeed the increase of faith. Strengthen our hope and revive our hearts unto love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I would ask you to keep your Bibles open to the text we've just read, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and especially again verses 11 through 13. What is our common reaction? What might your common reaction be to the reality, even the possibility of suffering for the sake of professing Jesus Christ? This morning we prayed for one who is imprisoned simply for confessing Christ. I know personally of brethren in other nations who've been imprisoned as ministers of the gospel simply for preaching Christ to their congregations. There are different forms that suffering can take. doesn't always mean imprisonment. But the question remains, how would we face, how do we face up to the reality of suffering for the cause, simply for the profession of Christ. Well, I suspect that many of us would naturally incline towards the view of so many in our day and age, that that kind of suffering, in fact, any kind of suffering, is to be avoided at all costs. Do whatever it takes not to suffer. Perhaps for us, this is part and parcel of the American dream that we've inherited. We grow up. We're supposed to be successful. Nothing can go wrong. Large home, large bank account, and all the rest. Any kind of suffering is contrary to that vision and so to be avoided at all costs. But for Christians, we need to understand that this is not what Scripture teaches us about suffering. In fact, the Scriptures indicate that suffering, for the sake of professing the name of Jesus Christ, this is part and parcel of our experience in this present passing age we will, 
to varying degrees, not always in the same way, but we will know something of suffering, something of persecution. Why? Well, we're not to think, as we might assume, as if suffering were some kind of inevitable fate. This is just what happens for no reason whatsoever. Nor should we think, as Job's friends did, and as we sometimes do, that suffering is always punishment for sin. No, we're speaking here of righteous suffering, of suffering simply for professing the name of Jesus Christ. This is part of our lives and will be a part of our lives, again, to varying degrees, because it is in suffering that God is conforming us to Jesus Christ. And in fact, suffering is part of our communion with Jesus Christ. You see, we are united to Jesus Christ in His sufferings even as we are and will be united to Jesus Christ in the glory of his resurrection. You see, suffering, though this is a counter-cultural proposition and counter, counter uh, to so much of our own thinking, suffering is a part of the divine purpose of grace towards us in Jesus Christ. Remember the Lord Jesus taught his disciples on the road to Emmaus, those who were downcast because they had seen Christ crucified. He says to them as the resurrected Christ that just as he or it was necessary for him to suffer first and enter into his glory. And so we learn from the scriptures like the one before us this morning, so it is for us to suffer first, and then to enter into glory. So here's the question. How are we rightly prepared for our suffering? And how do we endure? How do we press on in the midst of suffering towards that glory that is promised us in Christ. How do we endure? Paul teaches us here that it is by way of promise. In view of the promise of God, in fact, in view of the God of promise, we endure. Endure suffering. You see, Paul himself had to endure suffering, had to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel and its proclamation. And in the context of this letter, he is calling Timothy to do likewise, to suffer hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And what he doesn't tell him here is simply to pull himself up by his bootstraps and live with it. What he tells him instead is again that this is part and parcel of God's purpose. And the foundation upon which we suffer, 
The reason that we can endure in the midst of suffering has everything to do with the promise of God. The promise of God, yes, to Paul. The promise of God, yes, to Timothy. But the promise of God also to us. You see, we, like Paul, like Timothy, though we may not be called to preach the gospel, as believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as those who, like Paul and Timothy, are united to Jesus Christ, we have the same prospect of suffering because our head, Jesus Christ, suffered. And so, to help us here, to encourage us and to admonish us. Paul here in verses 11 through 13 of 2 Timothy teaches us to understand our suffering and hardship in light of the promise of God. In fact, in light of the God of promise. He tells Timothy, and so by extension, he tells us, that anyone who would lead the Christian life must be prepared for suffering. Must be prepared to endure suffering. Even as Christ did. We're called to understand that death, as one put it, is the pathway to life to a life never-ending and full of glory. The Apostle Paul, the scriptures in fact, call upon us to endure hardship, to endure suffering in conformity to Christ, in communion with Christ, and to do so understanding something of the promises of God to us, indeed understanding something of the God who has promised and who remains faithful to his promises. Now, we want to notice two specific things from the text this morning and two specific things that underscore for us something that is true beyond all doubt. That God and his promise are true and trustworthy. Notice first of all with me what the scriptures here teach concerning the trustworthy promise of God. The true and trustworthy promise of God. Paul opens verse 11 with these words. The saying is trustworthy. This is a faithful saying, true, trustworthy. Paul uses this language several times throughout the pastoral epistles in speaking to Timothy concerning his charge as a minister of Jesus Christ. And he uses it as a way to highlight the significance of what he's about to say. It's not to suggest that what he said leading up to this or what he will say even in subsequent verses is not somehow true or trustworthy. But here he puts it in a concise and compact way that Timothy, and so even you and me, can remember 
this particular saying. And what he wants us to remember is not only the saying itself, the word that follows, but the strength of this word, we might say. The strength of the promise. That this is a true word from God. A trustworthy word from God. It's something that is beyond all doubt. Something that we have no reason to eye with suspicion. We live in a time, in fact, as sinners, subsequent the fall of Adam, we've always lived in a time where man's word is and should often be treated with suspicion. But there's something that's seeped into the fabric of our day and age where almost everything that we read, everything that we hear, we treat it with suspicion. We put it up to the bar, if you will, of our own judgment. And most of it we regard as nonsense or rubbish. Paul is saying we should not treat the word of God as such, nor should we treat the particular saying that follows here as if it is dubious, as if it is beyond belief. No, he's giving to us a word that is of general Universal application. This is something that is true at all times and in every circumstance. Even if your suffering and my suffering look different than Paul's and Timothy's. Paul is writing to Timothy in chains. He's imprisoned. Timothy's not. The form looks different, but the reality, the substance is the same. And Paul is saying, regardless of our circumstance, we can believe this word. It's a true word, a trustworthy word. One that we can bank on at all times and in every circumstance. This is the strongest possible word then. And it's strong. It has this character Because of the substance of the promise itself. It's a strong promise because of the nature and character of the promise itself. Notice what Paul says. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. This is something that is true. A word that is true. A reality that is true. And a word then that we can believe as beyond all doubt. If we have died with Christ, we will also live with Him. The promise is true and trustworthy. The promise itself is marked by strength. Because the promise has to do with Jesus Christ with His death, with His resurrection, and with our share in His death and our share in His resurrection. And the promise is this, that if we have come to share by faith 
in Christ's death and in the benefits of that death, then without any doubt whatsoever, we shall also come to share in his resurrection and in the blessings of his resurrection from the dead. Critical for Paul here is the language with him, that is, with Christ. By faith he is teaching us. We are so united to Jesus Christ that we participate in, that we have fellowship with, communion with Christ in his death. And that if we do, indeed because we do, we will also have fellowship with him in his life, in his resurrected life, in his life as the ascended one, as Paul goes on to explain, the reigning one. If we have died with him, says Paul, what does it mean to have died with Christ? Well, it means to have died to the curse and the penalty of sin. means to have died to the obligation to the whole law, to keep it perfectly and perpetually. You see, because Christ, in his death, accomplished these things. It also means then that we have died in Christ or with Christ to the condemnation of sin. It means as well that we have died to the corruption of sin. We are no longer condemned before God. And we are no longer dead in trespasses and sins. And it's important to recognize that this death, which Paul speaks of as definitive, once for all, something that is in fact accomplished, this kind of death with Christ puts us in opposition to sin. Because it is sin that condemns us, and it is sin in fact in which we are corrupt, as those who are dead in sin in Adam. This puts us in opposition to the world, which loves sin, which harbors sin, and which is under the delusion of the devil himself. And so it also puts us in opposition to the evil one, to the devil. Who is the prince of this world and who, in a manner of speaking, holds the power of death. But you see, we've died to all of this, to the world, to the devil, because we've died to sin, to its condemnation, to its corruption, to the guilt of sin, to the reign of sin, and the power of sin. And so if we've died with him, that statement carries a heavy weight with it. It means that in opposition to death itself, in opposition to sin which leads to death, to a world of death, 
and to the devil who speaks nothing but death and who loves death means that we stand against them and that in this world, as opposed to it, we will suffer. But if we have died with him in this way, if when Christ was crucified, if when we came to faith in Christ, we received all the benefits of his crucifixion and death, Paul says, we will also certainly live with him. We will share in his death, but we will also share in his life. Now there's a sense in which we, also, we already live with Christ. We've been made alive together with Christ, Paul says. Seated with him in the heavenly places. But Paul speaks in the future tense here to remind us again of the fact that while we share in Christ's sufferings now, we are awaiting the full share of that resurrection glory. We live, yes, but then when Christ comes again, then when we are made like unto Him, body and soul, then when we see Him as He is, then we will truly live. And Paul says, we will live. You shall certainly live. You will be made like unto Him in resurrection glory. You will behold Him as the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. You will behold Him who lived and died for you, who rose again for you, who ascended on high for you, who reigns now for you. You will share in that life. And he's telling us this precisely because of what we experience now is so different. Yes, again, we've been made alive together with Christ, but this makes us again strangers to this world, pilgrims in this world. And means... That even, yes, having the reality of union with Christ in His death and the prospect of that full life with Him forever, this means suffering for us now. But we can endure that suffering precisely because of this promise. But there's more here. Paul says, even for this reason, in view of this promise, that if we've died with him, we will also assuredly live with him. He goes on to say, and to explain further, if we endure, we will also reign with him. What does it mean to endure? It means to press on. It means to keep going. But to press on and to keep going in what? In faith. Endure believing. Paul's going to speak of unbelief in just a minute, which confirms that here, as he speaks of endurance, he's speaking of believing. He's speaking of pressing on in faith in Jesus Christ, even in the midst of suffering. 
even with the reality, even with the prospect of suffering, endure. Believing in Jesus Christ so that you would patiently undergo all of this present suffering and hardship with Jesus Christ. And the prospect for those who endure under the shadow of the cross is the crown. Paul says, if you endure, you will also, indeed, we will also reign with him. At present, we are united to Jesus Christ, believing upon him as the one who already reigns. But again, the prospect and the promise before us is a full share in that reign. Reigning together with Him as the one who has, yes, already ascended, who is already seated at the right hand of the Father, who is already reigning, but who will bestow upon us the blessing that belongs to those who are kings and priests in Him. And with him. The Lord Jesus spoke similarly in Matthew chapter 16, in verses 24 through 27. He is one who, though the exclusive rights of kingship belong to him, is one who includes us into his kingdom, one who shares as it were, with us, the privilege of his royal reign, the blessings of his royal reign. He promises to us for the cross that we experience now, the crown of glory. But the opposite is also true. If we deny him, He also will deny us. Jesus says the one that denies him before men, he will deny. Matthew 10 and verse 33. Now we need to be very careful here. What does it mean to deny Christ? It means simply to reject him in unbelief. It isn't a reference to those temporary experiences of the believer. Peter himself denies Christ three times. But he is not denied by Christ, ultimately and finally. No, what's in view here is a kind of ultimate denial. A final denial. The kind of denial that marked Hymenaeus and Philetus who rejected the truth of the resurrection. The kind of denial that marked Demas who's mentioned later on in this letter who departs from Christ because he loved the world. This is a kind of total final denial of Christ In unbelief, 
And we know that because the denial of Christ, the denial in return by Jesus Christ, is a final denial. This is the judgment to come. This is that dreaded word. Christ will speak to those who remain in unbelief or who depart from a profession of Him back into unbelief. It is a full rejection of Christ. And the guarantee that follows is again one of of divine judgment. Again, this is not a momentary unfaithfulness, a kind of temporary shrinking back or doubting in times of trial. Those things are common for every true believer. But what's in view here is apostasy, a rejection of the gospel, a passing over from a state in which we profess Christ to open entire, whole, Unbelief. Why does Paul mention this here? Well, it's again to prove ultimately the truth and trustworthiness of the promise. He's not bringing this up that if we deny him, he will also deny us in order to frighten us in view of our sufferings and trials and even those times of doubt that we face as believers. No, he's trying to tell us, as he says even in verse 13, that such unbelief, such apostasy on the part of some, like Hymenaeus, Philetus, and Demas, does not invalidate the promise itself. For you see, if we are faithless, that is, if we are absent belief, He, Christ, remains faithful. Apostasy does not invalidate or undermine the promises of God in Jesus Christ. Christ remains true. Christ remains trustworthy. When someone leaves this church in unbelief, when someone departs from the brethren, and departs specifically in unbelief, rejecting the gospel that they once professed. That rejection should not cause us to say, God, have you departed from your promise? Christ, is your sacrifice somehow less than real and true and powerful? Is the gospel really not the power of God unto salvation? No, those who depart do not undermine God, His promise, and the power of Christ. How do we know that? How do we know, in fact, that He remains faithful? That God remains true to His promise? And that the promise is, in fact, trustworthy? We know it because of who God is. 
the foundation of the promise is in fact the God of promise. Notice briefly then, and secondly, what Paul says. Not only does he speak of the true and trustworthy promise of God, but he speaks of the true and trustworthy God of promise. Though men can deny God in unbelief, though Christ will deny men in judgment on the last day, none of this undermines the promise that if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Because God cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. God does not go back upon his promises. And his promises to us in Jesus Christ are true and trustworthy because God cannot be other than the God that he is, that he has always been and that he always will be. The strength of the promise of God is the strength of God himself who says to us that he is not like us, that is unlike us, We who are always changing, sometimes for the better, other times for the worse. God himself does not, God himself cannot change. You know, there are some things God cannot do. And it's precisely because of who he is. And that's a good thing. That's a great thing. God cannot change. All change is for the better or for the worse. This morning I walked up the steps of the church and was greeted by one who I would consider a young man, someone I graduated high school with, but I didn't recognize him. Didn't know it was him. We've changed. We've both lost pretty much all of our hair. I would say that's a change for the worse in some respects. There are changes for the better as well. By God's grace, we've both not only come to faith in Jesus Christ, but God has blessed us in sanctifying us, giving us families and the like. Change for the better, change for the worse. All change is either for the better or for the worse. To suggest that God could change then would be to suggest that he's changing Perhaps for the worse? We don't want to say that. And we don't want to say he would change for the better because then what would he have been? Something worse than that. No, the fact that God does not change, that God cannot change, is good news. Like the sons of Jacob in the days of Malachi, it means that we're not consumed in his wrath. It means that in his goodness... He bestows upon us the blessings of Christ. He's decreed, he's purposed according to his unchangeable will to save a people for himself, to unite us to Jesus Christ and make us sharers in his death, but also sharers in his resurrection. And that promise stands upon the foundation of God himself. 
His word, His promise to us, His gospel to us is true and trustworthy because He is true and trustworthy. God cannot be contrary to Himself. And so He cannot speak contrary to Himself. He will not give promises that remain unfulfilled. And so we can say that His promise is true. Because He is true. His promise to us in Jesus Christ is trustworthy because He is trustworthy. Indeed, Jesus Christ is trustworthy because He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who cannot lie has told us that just as we have died with Jesus Christ, so we will live with Him. Now, what does this mean? It means, for one, that we should keep on believing in Jesus Christ. Keep on believing the gospel that is preached to us week after week after week. It's so sad to me when someone says, you know, preacher, you proclaim the gospel week after week. Isn't there something more? In reality, there's nothing more. There's nothing greater. This is what we need to hear. Not only because we are slow to understand, but because we need to endure in the very same realities, the very same truths that we first believed. We need to endure believing in Jesus Christ, whose satisfaction and obedience is perfect for us, whose guarantee of the resurrection is his own resurrection. From the dead. And so we need to endure. But we need to endure believing. Brethren. If you gain nothing else. From the word of God this morning. May it be a reminder to you. To believe the promise. The world will promise you all manner of things, but they are lies. Sin, your own sinful heart, will promise you all manner of things, but they too are lies. The devil promised Adam something. The devil promised even Jesus something upon his allegiance. But all of that is vain and empty. My friends, believe Christ and his gospel. Believe God, your God. Believe what he said to you and know that it is true. Know that you can cast your entire eternity upon it. Precisely because he cannot deny himself. He can't go back. He can't change. Indeed, he won't change. He has said it. He means it. He'll stand by it. Cast your soul upon Christ and the unchanging promises of God to you in Jesus Christ. And thank God even that now we have an opportunity to come to the table that Christ appointed as a sign and a seal of his promises to us. He shows us. He shows us that our suffering 
is conformity to Him. But that our suffering, like His, will eventuate in glory. The glory of full communion with Him in eternal life. We get to come to the table now and receive the sign and the seal that says to us, just as the Word does, since we have died with Jesus Christ, we will live with Him. Just as we partake of His broken body and shed blood now at the table of our Lord, so we will partake of the full feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so let us come. Let's come to the table. Let us eat and drink and believe upon Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, may we remember, may we believe that we have been redeemed from our former way of life, a way inherited from our forefathers, not with those things which pass away, such as silver and gold, but we have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, without spot. So may our faith rest in him and rest in you who raised him from the dead for our sakes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.